In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him, and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah. These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at Sira Intensive. Two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Go to sirahintensive.com to register and for more information. Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillahi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in Inshallah continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Asiratun Nabawiyya, the prophetic biography In the last few sessions we've been discussing and talking about the battle of the trench Ghazwatul uh, Khandaq also referred to as Ghazwatul Ahzab The battle against the allied armies we talked about exactly um, what led up to this particular um, event and confrontation and we've also talked about the initial stages of the defense of the city of Medina where they dug the trench and some of the miraculous incidents that occurred at that particular time and how the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was making great efforts in order to be able to secure uh, the Muslims and be able to uh, hold everyone together and fortify them and strengthen them in the face of such uh, great adversity. What we're going to be talking about today, continuing on, in the previous session actually, I'll just mention very, very briefly, in the previous session we talked about how Banu Quraidah. Now Banu Quraidah was... Uh, a Jewish tribe that was in the city of Medina, they were signatories, they had signed, they had agreed to the constitution of the city of Medina, and they had entered into a pact, they had entered into an agreement with the Muslims to defend one another and to live in peace uh, with one another, and to protect each other in the, in the case where somebody was going to attack any one of them. And when this situation, the Battle of the Trench, when the Allied armies that were comprised of, we talked about uh, the Jews of Banu Nadir who had come from Khaybar and they had allied with the Quraysh from Mecca, Banu, uh, the people of Ghatfan, Ahlu Ghatfan. So they had visited Banu Quraydah trying to recruit them. And even though Banu Quraydah initially refused and resisted being recruited saying that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam has been nothing but good to us. Why would we turn our backs on him? Why would we abandon the agreement that we have that's been very beneficial and advantageous to us? Eventually they gave in to the pressure and they ended up violating their agreement with the Muslims. And this wasn't some type of paranoia or suspicious on the, suspicion on the part of the Muslims. The Prophet ﷺ, actually the leader of Banu Quraidah made a very public showing of this by ripping up the signed agreement that he had with him, stating the fact that this was something they had both agreed to. Secondly, the Prophet ﷺ, when hearing about this, he dispatched, he sent Sa'ad bin Ubadah and Sa'ad bin Mu'ad 
Abdullah bin Rawaha radiallahu ta'ala anhum to go and inquire, is this really the case? And Sa'ad bin Mu'adh, Sa'ad bin Ubadah, both representing the two Medinan tribes, Aus and Khazraj, they went to go speak to the leaders of Banu Quraidha, and they were very, very rude and insolent, and they, uh, they admitted to the fact, very blatantly, they admitted to the fact that yes, we have violated our agreement, and we do not, um, you know, intend to uphold the agreement, and we have changed sides. This news was brought back to the Prophet ﷺ, and it ended up causing him a lot of distress, a lot of concern. Because you have to understand the circumstances, and I kind of commented on this briefly, but I want everyone to really, really internalize, so that we can really understand the circumstances, because in the next coming sessions, we'll be talking about how the Prophet ﷺ dealt with Banu Quraidha, and I will reiterate it there again, because context is so important. The Prophet ﷺ is dealing with a situation where he has a couple of thousand Muslims. They are facing an army of 10,000 is gathered together, armed to the teeth, standing outside of Medina. They've had to dig a trench in order to be able to keep them away from them. They are running out of supplies, they are running out of food. We talked about the miraculous incident that one of the only ways that um, the Sahaba were able to eat was that Jabir ibn Abdullah prepared enough food that would suffice. Him and his wife prepared enough food that would suffice for four people at the most. And the Prophet himself made dua and came and sat and served it with his own blessed hands and it was able to feed up to 800 people. So it was these types of miracles that were keeping them going and keeping them alive. And in the midst of all of this stress, there's at least that, un that, that, that idea. The Prophet ﷺ did not expect, even though the agreement said that Banu Quraidha was supposed to pick up arms and come and fight alongside of the Muslims. But the Prophet ﷺ hadn't even demanded or requested that. The Prophet ﷺ was just simply asking for the fact that you do not end up attacking us. We know for a fact that you will not turn on us. And those same exact people within the boundaries of the city of Medina end up turning against the Muslims. Now you have an enemy behind your own ranks and lines. An enemy that can attack you from within. So just imagine about how distressful that must have been. So the Prophet of Allah وسلم, a couple of thousand of the men, they were on the front lines over there where they were, you know, watching the trench, launching arrows back, making sure nobody would try to get through the trench, and they were guarding it there. The women and the children had all been gathered, the women and children of Medina had all been gathered and had been fortified within a compound to be safe and secure there. And the Prophet ﷺ had posted Hassan bin Thabit anhu to basically just kind of keep patrol and keep guard outside of that compound. Now what ended up happening is that Banu Quraidha has turned on them. So there's a narration that's mentioned in many of the books of Sirah, including Ibn Ishaq and Ibn Hisham, Ibn Kathir and others, that mentions Abdullah bin Zubair radiallahu ta'ala anhu actually you know, narrates this incident that his mother, all right, excuse me, Abdullah bin Zubair radiallahu ta'ala anhu narrates from his father that Safiya bint Abdul Muttalib, now who is Safiya bint Abdul Muttalib? Safiya bint Abdul Muttalib is the aunt of the Prophet ﷺ, the paternal aunt. This is the sister of the Prophet ﷺ's father. Alright, his father's sister. 
who was a believer, who was a Muslimah. So she is a Muslim woman, an elderly Muslim woman. And she is a believer. She is a muhajirah. She has left Makkah and come to Medina for the sake of her deen, for the sake of her Islam. And along with that, she is a family member of the Prophet ﷺ, the aunt of the Messenger ﷺ. And just so that somebody can make the connection, this is the same exact woman who, when Hamza anhu was shaheed in the Battle of Uhud, and we talked about that particular incident, when Hamza anhu, her younger brother was shaheed in the battle, and she was coming to see his body, and she was bringing shrouds to cover his body, and the Prophet sent her son, Zubair anhu, to prevent her from coming and seeing the body because very tragically, Hamza anhu's body had been terribly mutilated by the enemy. And so when he tried to prevent his mother from coming, she pushed him out of the way. And Zubair is known as a warrior. But she pushed him out of the way and she said, leave me be. I need to go and see my brother's body and I have the shroud for him. And finally he said that the Messenger وسلم, has told you not to look at his body. And she stopped dead in her tracks. Because they had such respect. Right? The, the, the Sahaba are often described as waqaf. Like they would immediately stop on a dime in an instant if the word came from the Prophet ﷺ. So she stopped. And she said, if the Messenger ﷺ has said, then I won't. Eventually the Prophet ﷺ said, okay, allow her to come. And she came and she looked at the body and she told her son as well when he was trying to prevent her that what? I've heard what they've done. And I will make dua. I will ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for his mercy and his forgiveness. And I will make dua for my brother. And I have hope that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward him and reward me for the difficulty and the, the tragedy that has befallen us. But eventually when she came and she saw his body, she said, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. And made dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to reward them for this difficulty. Such a strong-willed, such a strong woman. Right? So we know about her. We've been introduced to her before. So Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha, she was there as well. And she internally within the compound was kind of the mother looking over everyone. All the women and children that were there. So what happened was that Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha, she saw that once Banu Quraidah had announced that they were going to join the fight against the Muslims, she saw that there was a man from Banu Quraidah who was walking around the compound. He was almost like as if he was scouting out the compound. And when she saw the fact that, you know, this man is kind of coming around and snooping around and scouting the compound, um, and she, and it narration mentions, وَقَدْ حَرَبَتْ بَنُوْ قُرَيْضَ وَقَطَعَتْ مَا بَيْنَهَا وَبَيْنَ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم وَلَيْسَ بَيْنَنَا وَبَيْنَهُمْ أَحَدٌ يَدْفَعُ عَنَّا وَالرَّسُولُ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم وَالْمُسْلِمُونَ فِي نُحُورِ عُدُوِّهِمْ لَا يَسْتَطِيعُونَ إِنْ يَنْصَرِفُوا عَنْهُمْ إِلَيْنَا إِنْ أَتَانَا آتٍ so she says that I had received the news that Banu Quraidah had violated their treaty. They had declared war against the Muslims. And there was nobody here to defend us against this man if he was scouting. And he would have ended up realizing that there's no soldiers here. There's no men here. There's only one, one man defending them. They don't have any weapons. They don't have any soldiers. They don't have anything like that. He would have come back with a force and quite possibly committed a massacre. 
Right? So she was aware of all of this and she says, and the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and the Muslims, the believers, they are out there on the front lines defending you know, Medina, the city of Medina, and they cannot leave there either to come and defend us and to fight to defend us. That's not possible. So if they end up attacking us, what are we supposed to do? So she said to Hassan bin Thabit radiallahu ta'ala anhu that this man from Banu Quraydah, you see him kamatara yutifu bil hisn. You see him kind of patrolling and going around, scouting out the compound. Wa inni wallahi ma amanuhu and yadulla ala auratina min waraina that I do not trust this man. I don't think that this is somebody out for a walk casually. Medina is under attack, there's a war going on. This guy's not out just for a walk. He's not just smelling the roses walking around. This seems very, and he's acting very conspicuous and suspicious. This is trouble. This is, this is trouble. Nothing but trouble. The Prophet and the believers are busy. So she told Hassan bin Thabit that you need to go out there and you need to confront him and actually, you know, take care of him. You need to handle him. Because he's a scout. Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha, an older woman, a Qurayshiya, was wise. And she had seen a lot. She had been through Badr, she had been through Uhud, she had been through all of this. Right? So she was very wise and she said, he's a scout. I, can, I, I, I know that he's a scout. So we actually have to handle him. We have to finish him. Because if he ends up taking the news back that there's nobody here to defend them, I mean, the, the most terrible thing imaginable could end up happening here. So Hassan bin Thabit radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, يَغْفِرُ اللَّهُ لَكِ يَا بِنْتَ عَبْدِ الْمُطَّلِبِ وَاللَّهِ لَقَدْ عَرَفْتِي مَا أَنَا بِصَاحِبِي هَذَا He said that, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala forgive me, may Allah forgive you, O daughter of Abdul Muttalib. He's speaking to her with reverence and respect. She's an elderly woman, she's like an aunt. If the aunt of the Prophet is everyone's aunt. Right? So he's speaking with respect. And he says that you know that I'm not the right guy for the job. That's not, I, you know, maybe there were a number of different concerns. I don't know if that's the right way to handle this. I don't have the same conviction that you have. Or that maybe he wasn't sure that if I go out there and he ends up killing me, then he's gonna have a free run for it. Right, so he says that I'm not sure that I can handle the situation. So, Safiya radiallahu ta'ala anha says, فَلَمَّا قَالَ لِي ذَلِكَ وَلَمْ أَرَى عِنْدَهُ شَيْئًا احتجزت ثم اخذت عمودا ثم نزلت من الحصن اليه فضربته بالعمود حتى قتلته so safia radiyallahu ta'ala anha says that i when i saw that i'm going to have to handle the situation myself i ended up you know kind of tying something around myself like tying my, you know, normally maybe wearing like as a, as a woman wearing a looser garment or something so she said i kind of tied up my loose garment because you can't fight with like big flowing cloth. So she said that I tied up my garment, I picked up this big old stick, like a baseball bat looking thing. And she says, I went down from the compound and I confronted him and I basically finished him off. She says, Once I was done with him, Then I went back into the compound, so I said, now go out there and remove his weapon and his armor from him. I didn't remove his armor and his weapons because he's a man and I don't want to have to, you know, make contact with him and touch him any more than I have to. 
So you go ahead and take care of the situation. قَالَ مَعْلِي بِسَلْبِهِ حَاجَ يَا بِنْتَ عَبْدِ الْمُطَّلِبِ He said that uh, Hassan bin Thabit radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, No, 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 it's okay. I don't need his armor and weapons. It's alright. We can just leave him there. So, but, I, I mean, I don't mean, mean to make light of the situation, but the, the, the point here is that I want you to understand the context. I cannot emphasize this enough. Because we're about to talk about how the Prophet ﷺ handled Banu Quraidah. And that's something that there's a lot of discussion and you know, there is a lot of, there's not a lot of controversy about it, but a lot of controversy is created about it, manufactured about it. But I want you to imagine how dire the situation of the Muslims was. The fact that the Prophet of Allah وسلم, and the Muslims were so overwhelmed that an army of 10,000 was about to overrun and pillage and burn Medina to the ground. They're barely holding them off by digging a trench and praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to defend them and having to guard that trench day and night. That an elderly woman is the one having to defend the women and children left back in Medina. Because now there is an enemy within the, within the, behind their own ranks. Behind the ranks of the Muslims. This is the direness of their situation. And that has to be understood. Right? So, and secondly, of course, the obvious lesson here is that we do not do enough of a... You know, we don't do justice really honestly to really discussing the legacy of these remarkable people in general, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, the companions of the Prophet sallallahu amongst them the family members of the Prophet sallallahu We do not do justice to discussing them and their legacy and their service, and what an unbelievable service they have provided to the deen of Allah, and how indebted we are to them as Muslims 1400 years later, halfway across the world, that these people paid the price with their sweat, their blood, their tears, in order for us to be able to enjoy Islam the way that we do. And amongst them, whether we're talking about the Sahaba or the family members of the Prophet ﷺ, there were some remarkable, amazing women. Right? And that's something, you know, a lot of times in the face of a lot of the discussions that go on, where there are accusations against Muslims or Islam about being, you know, chauvinistic or being biased or prejudiced against women, being, you know, marginalizing women and their roles and their rights in society. There's all these accusations against it. And there are definitely very valid criticisms. So there's outside accusations against the essence of the religion itself. And we obviously know that that's wrong and incorrect. But we have to educate ourselves and be able to properly articulate a response to that. But a lot of times, even from not only outside, but even within, there is sometimes a very valid criticism against the culture that we might have created within the community. Right? And we just simply have to understand that just as I or my brother or my son might be in need of inspiration and role models and a precedence within the history of their religion of, of amazing men and amazing young men who are able to serve their deen and be able to do heroic and remarkable things, we also similarly have to understand that whether it be our wives or our sisters and our daughters are similarly in need of remarkable, you know, inspiration from remarkable individuals. Amazing women who did remarkable things in order to, you know, secure the deen and were willing to do whatever it took in order to be able to serve their deen. And this is a prime example of, you know, just the courage and the conviction and the clarity that this woman had, the aunt of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Safiya, may Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala be pleased with her.
The next thing that I wanted to talk about here is actually, again, it demonstrates how difficult the circumstances were and how stressful and overwhelming the situation of the Battle of the Trench in Ghazwatul Ahzab really was. This, this is a very notable incident within this event. And again, many of the books of Sirah and even the books of Hadith like Imam Bukhari also has narr have narrations that allude to this. The narration of Bukhari that is narrated by Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he says that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said on the day uh, uh, during the battle of the trench, Mala Allahu alayhim buyutahum wa quburahum naran. That may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, deal with these people. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala punish these people. كَمَا شَغَلُونَ عَنِ الصَّلَاةِ الْوُسْطَى حَتَّى غَابَتِ الشَّمْسِ That they so overwhelmed us, and they were so, you know, uh, relentless in their pursuit of us, that they prevented us from offering our prayer until the sun had set. And so... I'm going to mention a little academic point here, but then I'll move on to the main point that I wanted to make. There's a little bit of a difference of opinion. The majority of the scholars say, so there's a specific type of prayer that the Quran speaks about. Right? So there's an ayah of the Quran that details a type of prayer that is called Salatul Khawf. The prayer in a circumstance of fear which primarily manifests itself in the battlefield. So when you find yourself in the, in the midst of battle, then how are you supposed to be able to offer your prayer in that situation? Especially if it's a long prolonged you know, battle type situation, then how do you offer the prayer? Because it's not like everybody can just call time out, lunch break, and everybody goes off and uses restroom and makes wudu and then lines up, straighten the lines and now let's pray and then make your dhikr afterwards and make dua and let's you know, pray some nawafil and so It doesn't work that way. Because if you're gone from the front lines, even if it's not like active hand-to-hand -hand combat going on in that moment, but two armies are camped out across from one another and they see that you've just taken an extended break for 45 minutes and you're gone. Well, guess what? You're gone, right? So that's not going to really end up working out. So that's where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran legislated Salatul Khawf. A very beautiful form of the prayer where obviously they are shortening the prayer into two raka'ahs. A four raka'ah prayer is shortened into two raka'ah for obviously for their situation. And secondly, the way that it's performed is that each group uh, ends up offering, the Prophet ﷺ leads the prayer, and each group ends up offering one raka'ah with the Prophet ﷺ, and then they make up the second raka'ah on their own. Alright, and that's how the prayer is offered, and what happens is while one group is praying with the Prophet ﷺ, the other group is standing on the front line, so that everybody knows that we're very much still here and engaged. Alright, and then they basically switch and that group doesn't leave the front line until the next group arrives there and then the other group comes and then finish, you know, offers the prayer with the Prophet ﷺ. And this specifically was a situation that was a little bit more unique to the time of the Prophet ﷺ because especially if you're in a situation of battle, you don't know that you're going to survive this or not. And the Prophet ﷺ is leading prayer, I want to pray with the Prophet ﷺ. Can you imagine everybody just, we're, we're just, you know, asking, okay, we need to split up into two groups, one group going to pray first and the other group is going to pray second. My first question would be, is the Prophet ﷺ praying with the first group or second group? Because I want to pray behind him. Is this my last prayer that I'm ever going to offer? I need to pray with the Prophet ﷺ. Right? So that obvious you know, uh, incentive and motivation was there and it's very understandable. 
This is Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa There's no inherent virtue praying behind, you know, any other imam or scholar or shaykh. But the messenger, Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa there's definitely inherent virtue in that. So that's why that motivation was there. So it was a little bit more unique to the time of the Prophet sallallahu So some scholars of the seerah have said that, you know, that prayer was legislated in the battle of Usfan, which we talked about, which was prior to Ghazwatul Khandaq. But the majority of the scholars say, no, 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 it was legislated afterwards. And they are correct. And one of the most obvious evidences for the fact that it was legislated afterwards was the fact that they did not utilize that form of the prayer in, during the Battle of the Trench. But what ended up happening was that Ibn Ishaq, rahimullahu ta'ala, now I'll mention the actual story and the incident. What Ibn Ishaq uh, and, and uh, Ibn Kathir and others they mention is that the mushrikun, what they did was they... Eventually, during that 20 some odd days that they had laid siege to the trench around the city of Medina, they at one point during that siege, they employed a particular strategy where they spread up into small different groups all along the stretch of the trench, all right? All the way from the beginning till the end. And they basically kept firing arrows and kept trying to get people through the trench. It was like an offensive they launched all on one moment at one day, coordinated attack, so that the Muslims would have to spread themselves thin, and maybe, maybe, somebody would be able to get through and eventually start to kind of change the situation. So the Prophet of Allah of course told the Muslims to spread out and do whatever it takes in order to be able to defend. Now, the Prophet where he was on the trench, they, the, the mushrikun, the, the, the enemy armies, what they did was they specifically allocated a larger group of people to attack on that front, to try to get through to the Prophet right? To try to get to the, 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 the leader. And they figured that if we're able to inflict some type of damage or harm here, it could possibly just completely, you know, finish the situation altogether. So they were launching a very aggressive offensive on the side where the Prophet ﷺ was. So the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala had to go and defend there, and even the Prophet ﷺ had to basically be on alert the whole time. And they kept this offense on non-stop all throughout the afternoon until the sun had finally set. And once the sun had set and the night had basically come in, they themselves tired and tired and fatigued, they were exhausted. So the, the enemy forces retreated, and that's when the Muslims were finally able to breathe a little and relax a little. But now obviously as that ended up happening, the Prophet of Allah said, Shagaluna an salat al-asr. They made us miss Asr prayer. So Asr prayer time came in, they had prayed Dhuhr, the narration mentions, one of the narrations mentions that they had prayed Dhuhr, and what ended up happening was they launched that offensive after, shortly thereafter, and the Muslims were so busy holding them out from the trench, that Maghrib time came in and they were not able to pray Salat al-Asr. And the Prophet ﷺ was very, very upset. Right? He was very, very upset. And the Sahaba were also very frustrated. And when the Prophet ﷺ saw, and many of the munafiqun, the hypocrites that were still a little undercover, they were trying to keep up some type of appearance, they just started talking very, very inappropriately. And they started, you know, uh, mocking the Muslims, and they started making fun of them, and so on and so forth. And when the Prophet ﷺ saw that there was a lot of, you know, that the, 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 the troops were becoming demoralized, the Prophet ﷺ said, shidda." That I, I swear to Allah that this is about to finish. This difficulty that has come will go. 
وَإِنِّي لَأَرْجُوا أَنْ أَطُوفَ بِالْبَيْتِ الْعَتِيقِ آمِنًا And I'm telling you right now, we're going to do tawaf of the Kaaba. We are all going to go and do tawaf of the Kaaba. Don't you worry. وَأَنْ يَدْفَعَ اللَّهُ إِلَيَّ مَفَاتِيحَ الْكَعْبَ We will once again hold the keys to the Kaaba and re-establish the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala there. And so the narration basically mentions that the Prophet of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, another narration of Bukhari, Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and we know Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu was a very passionate individual. Right? So he came to the Prophet ﷺ after the sun had set, فَجَعَلَ يَسُبُّ كُفَّارَ قُرَيْشِ And he was just like cursing at the kuffar, the, the enemy forces. And when he saw the Prophet ﷺ, he said, يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ مَا كِتُوا أَنْ نُصَلِي حَتَّى كَادَتِ الشَّمْسَ تَغْرُبَ O Prophet of Allah I was trying to pray, but I wasn't able to pray before the sun set. And the Prophet ﷺ said, وَاللَّهِ مَا صَلَّيْتُهَا I haven't prayed either, O Umar. Don't worry, we're all in this together. And then he says, فَنَزَلْنَا مَعَا رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ Jabir bin Abdullah says, We all went with the Prophet ﷺ to Butthan, and we everyone, فَتَوَضَّعَ لِلصَّلَاةِ The Prophet ﷺ made wudu, وَتَوَضَّعْنَا لَهَا And we also made wudu for our salah as well. فَصَلَّ الْعَصْرَ بَعْدَ مَا غَرْبَةِ الشَّمْسِ And the Prophet ﷺ prayed the Asr prayer after the sun had set. Even though the prayer time was gone because they had missed it due to a valid reason and valid excuse. ثُمَّ صَلَّى بَعْدَهَا الْمَغْرِبِ And then the Prophet ﷺ told Bilal anhu when they were done praying Asr, called the Iqama again, and he called the Iqama again, and then they prayed their Maghrib prayer. And this is mentioned by Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim, Tirmidhi, Nasa'i, and many, many of the different scholars of Hadith, and also in the books of Sirah. And so... There are some narrations as well that kind of mention the fact that the Prophet of Allah, that there are some narrations which mention the fact as well that, and, and some say that it was the same exact incident. Some say it happened on, on yet another day that they launched such an offensive from noon all the way till night. And this time they didn't even stop when the sun set, they went well into the night. They started all the way at noontime, even before Dhuhr time, and they kept the offense going till midnight. Like it was a 12-hour, non-stop, brutal offense. That the Prophet and the Sahaba were not able to pray their Dhuhr, their Asr, their Maghrib, or their Isha. Like until it was Isha time. They were not able to pray their Dhuhr, um, Asr, or Maghrib until it was Isha time. فَأَمَرَ بِلَالًا فَأَذَّنَ وَأَقَامَ He told Bilal, قَالَ ذَانٍ قَالِ قَامَ فَصَلَّ الدُّهْرَ And he led them in Dhuhr. Finally, when the offensive had ended, he led them in Dhuhr. ثُمَّ أَمَرَهُ فَأَذَّنَ وَأَقَامَ فَصَلَّ الْعَصْرَ Then he said, Bilal, go. And Bilal again, رضي الله تعالى عنه, called Adhan and Iqama and they prayed Asr. Then, ثُمَّ أَمَرَهُ فَأَذَّنَ وَأَقَامَ Then again he told him and he called Adhan and called Iqama and فَصَلَّ الْمَغْرِبْ And then they prayed Salat al-Maghrib. ثُمَّ أَمَرَهُ فَأَذَّنَ وَأَقَامَ فَصَلَّ الْعِشَى and then again he told him, go Bilal, and Bilal radiallahu anhu again called Adhan, called Iqama, and then they prayed Isha. Thumma qal. And then the Prophet said, Ma ala wajhil ardi qawmun yadhkurun Allah fi hadhihi sa'ati ghayrukum. And then the Prophet told the Sahaba, on the face of God's green earth, there's no one besides you right now at this moment remembering and worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala aside from you people. That's victory. You see, the Prophet ﷺ, what he was imparting there. The enemy forces are at the doorstep. It's been 20 days. We're holding them off by the skin of our teeth. Barely holding on for dear life. We don't know what, how tomorrow is going to go. 
Every day seems to get only worse and worse and worse. But what we do see is, after all is said and done, we're sitting here, we're standing here, and praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and remembering Allah. What more could you ask for? That they might not have let us pray on that exact time, but they couldn't stop us from praying. They couldn't stop us from worshipping Allah. They couldn't stop us from putting our face on the ground and humbling ourselves before our Creator and Master. That's what matters. That's the only thing that matters. That's what determines success. People in this world value, measure, determine success with their own, you know, in their own ways. They have their own gauges on how they measure and gauge success. They have their own measurements. But success in the life of the hereafter, the, right here. With your face on the ground, that's how success, the eternal success of the life of the hereafter, that's how it's earned. And that's what you were blessed with today. So count your blessings. What are your blessings? Fajr, Dhuhr, Asr, Maghrib, Isha. Those are your blessings. Powerful perspective. And so what I wanted to highlight here, by talking about this, because in the next session we'll talk about how the Prophet ﷺ made dua and then eventually the battle of the trench ended. But what I wanted to really highlight here before we talk about the next few events unfolding and how things transpired and then Manu Qurayza and everything else, which will be a very enlightening inshallah discussion, but one that will involve a lot of discussions of usul and fiqh and legality and politics and methodology and strategy and philosophy and all these different things. Right? But right here we have a very powerful reminder That even in the face of death Even in the battlefield They didn't forget their prayer That prayer is something so profound And so valuable to them That they were so distraught The Prophet himself was so upset Umar was so distraught On the fact that they weren't able to pray On its time Because they understood They had experienced life without that and say, we can't ever imagine that life ever again. Life without that, without a connection to Allah, a meaningful, powerful connection to Allah, a constant connection to our Master and Lord, there's no significance and value of that life. It's very meaningless, it's very empty, it's hollow. We can't ever imagine that. And that's what they were distraught about. That's what they were upset about. And eventually we're going to talk about the incident. But it should be a very powerful reminder when we get there again. And I'll kind of preface here by saying that even prayer being legislated in the battlefield. Think about what that tells us about the supreme importance and the centrality of prayer to the Muslim lifestyle. And to our deen and our religion. We can sit and have conversations all day long about theology and philosophy and legality. But if we can't get up and pray when it's time to pray, then what's really the value in it? Right? And many of us, many of us, right? We might find ourselves in, in, in certain circles or situations or in a particular mindset at a particular point in our lives where we are very, you know, intellectually engaged with the religion and we're discussing all these complex issues of philosophy of the religion and theology and usul and fiqh and all of that and we might end up knowing somebody in our lives sometimes it's a father sometimes it's a mother or a grandparent or an uncle or an aunt right or uh, somebody you know in the community or a friend's father or mother or somebody 
right? Maybe a lot of times an elderly, what we think is a very simple-minded person, doesn't really get a lot of this, doesn't really understand things properly, doesn't have a lot of knowledge and insight into the religion. But while, while, while I don't have the spiritual fortitude and the commitment to my relationship with Allah to actually stand up at its proper time and pray to Allah, offer my prayer, that very simple-minded, old-school, old-timer, right? Person doesn't let five minutes pass after the adhan time comes in without getting up, making wudu, and standing up and praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's something beautiful about that type of deen. And that type of practice of the deen. Do not undermine that. Do not brush it off as simple-mindedness, or ritualistic, or old time, or back home, or whatever somebody wants to call it. There's something beautiful and there's something powerful about it. Value it, and strive to develop and inculcate it. That's that, and that's not at the expense of an intellectual exploration and appreciation of our deen and religion, but learn to cultivate both hand in hand. As the Prophet ﷺ taught us to do. Right? And that's the importance and the significance of prayer that we see here that the thing that kept them going through such difficult circumstances was the fact that they stood up and prayed in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's a direct link to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that grants you more strength than anything else could, that grants you conviction and confidence in what you believe and in what you're doing. And that's the most important thing at the end of the day. So insha'Allah, we will go ahead and... Last thing I'll mention, this is a little bit of an academic point. Um, and some scholars have even joked about it that this is one of the examples of like a never-ending type of discussion. But in ayah number 238, but there's something very powerful. In ayah number 238 of Surah Al-Baqarah, Surah number 2, ayah number 238, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, حَافِذُوا عَلَى الصَّلَوَاتِ وَالصَّلَاةِ الْوُسْطَى that safeguard carefully, diligently watch over the prayers. And especially the middle prayer or the best prayer. One translation is also the best prayer. And stand for the sake of Allah alone in a state of absolute total submission and obedience to Allah. That there's a lot of discussion as to that middle prayer, what is that referring to? And if you actually read the detailed, you know, conversation, tafsir, discussion, commentary of the scholars, you'll find pretty much all five different opinions. It's referring to Dhuhr, it's referring to Asr, or Maghrib, or Isha, or Fajr. You'll find all different types of opinions. Majority of the scholars, however, Imam al-Shafi'i, rahimullahu ta'ala, most notably Ibn Kathir, rahimullahu ta'ala, right, very notably as well, many, many of the scholars are of the opinion that it's making reference to Salat al-Asr. That that's what Allah refers to as the middle prayer. Right? And also in some sense, the best prayer. Right? And, and so it, it, and that's achieved through the narration of Bukhari, where the Prophet says, an, They preoccupied us from the middle prayer. And he was, in other narrations, corroborate that that was Asr prayer. So then we know that that ayah 238 quite possibly is talking about Asr prayer. Not absolutely conclusively, but still many of the scholars say that is probably the most uh, authoritative or likely interpretation of it. 
But it's still, the question still remains, why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refer to it? Why didn't He just say, حَافِذُوا عَلَى الصَّلَوَاتِ وَالصَّلَاةِ الْعَصْرِ Why وَالصَّلَاةِ الْوُسْطَى Why did Allah call it the middle prayer? How is it the middle prayer? Right? So some say, well, because it's kind of transitioning to the evening, right? And so on and so forth. But there's a very fascinating hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. Two ahadith I'll share with you. Right, one is the Prophet ﷺ when he says, "Man fatathu salatul asri maluhu wa ahluhu," that somebody who ends up missing the asr prayer, it's a, it should be a tragedy for a person like losing your family members or losing all your wealth. Like imagine losing all your wealth overnight, or imagine well, God forbid, Allah protect everyone's family, but imagine losing your loved ones. What a tragedy that would be for somebody. That missing asr prayer is that type of a tragedy, the Prophet says. In another narration, the Prophet says, Man al-bardain al-jannah. Whoever prays the two cooler prayers, which again, through the explanation of the Sahaba, we know is referring to Fajr and Asr prayer, dakhla al-jannah, that person will enter paradise. That person has entered paradise. So we see that the Prophet ﷺ in other narrations has made a very strong emphasis on Asr prayer. Asr prayer, emphasizing it in the Qur'an, emphasizing it within the hadith about what a tragedy is to miss it. Saying that if you can lock down Asr prayer and Fajr prayer, that that's going to take you to paradise. That doesn't mean that somebody says, okay, that's it. Fajr and Asr are my thing. I'm never going to pray Dhuhr, Maghrib and Isha ever again. Dakhla al-Jannah. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is if you have the mindfulness, the awareness, and the discipline to lock down your Fajr and Asr prayer, Dhuhr, Maghrib and Isha will feel like a piece of cake. They'll fall right in place. And we all generally understand the dynamic of Asr prayer. Because it's at the end of the day. Right? And what's beautiful and remarkable about the, the, the wisdom of our deen and religion, the Qur'an and the sunnah of the Prophet it is so relevant and universal and applicable in all times. That for in olden times, like take their situation, if you were a farmer, Asr prayer, you gotta wrap up whatever work you had left in the fields before the sun sets because then it gets dark. So it's a rush to finish off your day. Now somebody might say, well I'm not a farmer. But even we understand that, think about our different dynamics in our communities, right? Different types of people. If you're a working professional, usually Asr prayer, you're trying to beat the traffic home or you're stuck in traffic. And think about how many times it's happened, especially like in the winter time, when Asr is kind of early, where you left work trying to get home to pray Asr, but then you realize you caught a little bit of traffic, Asr prayer is slipping and going, and now you're tired from the day's long work, you've already been sitting in traffic for 30 minutes, and your really only legitimate option right now is to pull over, to find a parking lot, to you know, take the couple of exits down that's near, right? The Irving Masjid, let's give them a plug, right? So it, take the exit for Irving Masjid, Esther's Road. So, um, and, and come here. So now what ends up happening? It's like a detour. Now you're like, oh, I'm gonna lose another 20 minutes. And I'm tired. I don't wanna stop. And the traffic just seems like it's starting to move now. I'll make it home, I'll make it home. You know you're not making it home. Because like me, you live in South Arlington, how are you going to make it home? Because you still got 360 to deal with. I'm saying all these highways and people listening to it later are going to go, what's he talking about? Right? But my point is, you know you got another 45 minutes, 30 minutes of a commute ahead, you got 20 minutes left for Asr prayer, and you're like, ah, I'll make it, I'll make it. Now you know you're not going to make it. 
But at the same time, you don't feel like getting, pulling over, taking the exit, getting out in a parking lot, praying next to your car real quickly. It takes five minutes. Or taking the next exit and going over to the masjid five minutes, ten minutes down the road, going inside, praying your asr and going. You lost 15, 20 minutes. No, 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 you gained the best of this world and the next. That's the dynamic with asr prayer. Think about school, right? Same thing, right? You're busy with classes, you're running from classes to classes, you're trying to get home. But take care of your asr prayer. So asr will always present that type of challenge and dynamic. And that's why there's such an emphasis on it. If you can be that committed to asr prayer, which always seems to come at a time where it's going to make you go out of your way, but you can develop that type of a commitment, all the other prayers will start to fall in line. Because it's an issue of discipline. Right, so just a little point I wanted to make here Since the mention of Salatul Wusta came up And uh, many of the scholars discuss it at, the, at this particular point We'll go ahead and conclude here uh, for this session insha'Allah May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us all the ability To practice everything that was said and heard Subhanallah bihamdihi, subhanakallah bihamdik Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nasakfirka wa natubu ilayk A very, um, just quick announcement to the brothers and sisters uh, Who come here every week or who tune in uh, live online. Um, I won't be able to make next week's uh, session. I'm traveling uh, out of the country, so I won't be able to make it to next week's session, but inshallah from the following week, we'll be back on track and back on schedule. So I apologize for, you know, kind of the break in the routine, but inshallah, use that opportunity to maybe, you know, catch up on some of the previous lessons that you'll find on our website and on the podcast, inshallah. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah.